transformed every aspect of the productive process. The electrification of rural America allowed farmers to receive the benefits of electricity, producing more and more efficiently with less backbreaking labor. Their minds were freed up for creativity and innovation. The effects of an integrated transport system and communications network allowed for a greater dissemination of ideas. Increases in new technology in the medical field extended the life expectancy of the average citizen. Scientific progress and productivity drove the economy forward, increasing the role of society to protect and increase the welfare of the people. And the population was moralized once again to do the impossible. With the U.S. entry into the war, Roosevelt used the productive capacity he had built up in the 30s, retooling the factory floor space of auto production facilities and transforming it into the powerhouse for the arsenal of democracy to secure victory in World War II. U.S. production turned the tide of the World War, and soon the Allies were storming onto the beaches at Normandy. The United States stood at the height of its power and production, and was, at that moment, the greatest economy the world had ever seen. However, sitting there in his office, weeks before his death, Roosevelt was faced with a critical dilemma. Though he had brought the United States out from the brink of depression, the rest of the world lived in a tragedy. Europe was devastated by the war. The economies of Germany, France, Poland were in a shambles. Cities had been bombed, healthcare, education, and police infrastructure was barely non-existent in some areas. And in the third world, it was even worse. Decades of imperial rule over these nations by the British Empire had held them down in the most backwards and degenerate of conditions. Places such as Africa stood in utter poverty, living off of land that was barely fit for survival. India and other nations had populations that were on the verge of starvation. Roosevelt had not just wanted to free the United States. He wanted to free the whole world and bring the same productive power and development that had built up the U.S. economy to nations everywhere. But such a mission would have the British Empire to contend with. Globally, nations were still ruled by the British imperial system, the United States was the only nation in history that had freed itself from that system. The British Empire halted the development of nations and enslaved the populace in order to rule over them. It was the age-old system of imperialism that Roosevelt faced at the end of the war. And he knew that if he was to destroy that system, he would have to destroy its greatest tool, the mechanism of international monetarism and replace it instead with the principles of the U.S. Constitution and a credit system whereby the U.S. dollar could serve as the vehicle for credit for the large-scale development of nations. Roosevelt vowed that arbitrary monetary value controlled by an imperial elite would no longer decide the future of nations. Just as the New Deal gave the United States sovereign control over their own uttering of currency for rebuilding the nation, Roosevelt envisioned that by extending the credit system of the United States internationally, sovereign nations could control their own future and develop their citizenry freely. But for this, a new international framework had to be built.
Dinas was so mad that he shook. Sousa Costa was just furious. The head delegate from India was just as furious as could be. Will somebody please tell me what is going on with the second committee? I can't stand it anymore. I refuse to continue sitting on this committee. And the problem is that Keynes, he read the bank long after Harry looked at the fund, so his performance tends to be rushed. But I guess, given his position, it's understandable, although tactless. Come on, Dean. You know there's no comparison between the two programs. His performance is worse than bad. You have to understand his position. I think I understand his position. Right, enough arguing. Enough arguing. Will somebody please tell me what the problem is? Dean, you sit on that committee. What is it? Let's be frank here, if I may be frank. When Dean gets upset, which is a rare thing, something must be gravely wrong. Well, the first problem with the bank is that the commission meetings on the bank, which are run by Keynes, are being rushed in this perfectly impossible and outrageous way. So he knows this thing inside and out, and you have to understand that he's, he's got this extreme pressure on him. So when anyone says Section 15C, he knows it. No one else in the room knows it. So before they can turn to it to see what it is he's talking about, he'll say, and hearing no objections, it's passed. Well, they're still trying to find Section 15C. And then he says, we're now talking about 26D. And they begin fiddling around with their papers, and before they can find that, it is passed. See, why don't you just go in there and tell Keynes he's losing everybody in the committee the way he's handling these meetings? I'll do it even. I'll go in there in a perfectly calm, nice way and tell Keynes that at least half a dozen people have come to me perfectly livid and that I think that he's making a big mistake. And I'll even ask him if he wouldn't mind doing the thing at half speed. The thing is, though, I think I understand why he's doing it. He wants to make sure the meeting's finished before Wednesday when the train leaves. Dean, just because he's an autocrat doesn't mean you have to take it from him. Just go in there and you tell him what you think about him. I'll even go into the next meeting. I'll tell him that I think he's just taking the thing too fast. He's losing everybody. Look, the problem is nobody tells him what they think about him. They're either too nice or they're too scared. I think you should go in there with the whole crowd behind you He'll change his position. The American delegation to the Bretton Woods Monetary Conference of 1944 was headed up by Morgenthau, Roosevelt's Secretary of the Treasury, who was also the president of the conference, and Harry Dexter White, one of Roosevelt's chief economists and head of the Treasury Division of Economic Research. Also included were Assistant Secretary of State Dean Atkinson, former Utah banker-turned-chairman of the Federal Reserve, Mariner Eccles, and Fred Vinson, one-time congressman and then-director of the Office of Economic Stabilization, who later became President Truman's Treasury Secretary. Roosevelt deployed them to represent his vision for the post-war world and to bring that vision to bear on the 44 nations gathered at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to set up a new post-war international economic framework. Roosevelt and the U.S. delegation, especially Morgenthau and White, proposed a system whereby the ability of the United States to utter credit in the form of U.S. dollars was key. They proposed to have the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency tied to gold upon which all other currencies would be fixed. This would allow for the might of the U.S. economy to play a direct role in guaranteeing credit for long-term productive development such as power systems, the development of nuclear energy, the mass greening of the African desert, and a system of interconnecting high-speed rail networks. For such a vision, it was crucial that a strong and stable currency was the central reserve currency. Otherwise, no nations would be willing to accept credit, except in the form of gold. And there was not enough gold in the whole of the world 
which could fund the enormity of the scale of project Roosevelt intended for after the war. Early in 1943, before any plan was published, White had told a group of economists, the dollar is the one great currency in whose strength there is universal confidence. It will probably become the cornerstone of the post-war structure of stable currencies. The only problem was dealing with the British. The British brought a delegation of economists, lawyers, and accountants, all headed up by representative economist John Maynard Keynes, a staunch advocate of the British imperial system of economics, who in the preface to the German edition of his general theory of employment, interest, and money, said he preferred having his book published in Nazi Germany, the same Nazi Germany we had just fought a war against, because it would receive more approval from the Nazis than other democratic audiences. Keynes was an accountant and an autocrat to the core. Since his early childhood, Keynes had a fascination with counting and tabulating everything. As a child, he knew the number of steps on every single one of the porches in his neighborhood. And when he got older, he would record every single one of his sexual encounters, dutifully tabulating who he had sex with and what kind of encounter it was. This was the personality the Americans had to deal with at Bretton Woods. From the very beginning, there was an air of tenseness and mistrust between the American and the British delegation, and particularly between Harry Dexter White and John Maynard Keynes. Keynes scoffed at the American way of doing things, objecting to the number of lawyers on the U.S. side and making snide remarks about rabbinics, referring to the Jewish officials at the Treasury, such as White and Edward Bernstein. He was in ill health with chronic heart problems, having suffered from a dangerous heart attack in 1937. He couldn't take the stresses of the meetings and discussions at Bretton Woods, refused to have any meetings or gatherings after dinner time, and was frequently described as under heavy stress, with which he clearly didn't cope too well. Keynes' proposal for Bretton Woods was directly opposed to the American one. John Maynard Keynes proposed to set up a global financial authority called the International Clearing or Currency Union that would issue a global currency, the Bancor, later known as Unitas, by which all international trade would be measured. The key to his proposal was that nations were to achieve a balance of trade. Creditor nations would strive within a small percentage or so not to export more than they imported, and debtor nations would strive not to import more than they exported. Any imbalances or trade deficits on the part of creditor or debtor would be charged an interest fee on the overdrawn account, paid directly to the ICU. Essentially, what Keynes was proposing was a giant worldwide central bank. However, if such a system were to be implemented, it would mean that the financing of valuable infrastructure projects to build up developing nations would halt to a minimum. Any sort of economic development or imports from creditor nations by a debtor nation would enslave the debtor nation to the ICU, forcing them to pay and pay and pay up. So although Keynes' system, which was nominally supposed to encourage creditor nations to convert their surplus money from cutting exports into bankers and invest those into debtor nations, did allow for minimal development and innovation, it never allowed for the large-scale, powerful reconstruction Roosevelt wanted. In short, 
it would never allow the debtor or developing nation to reach a status equal with other nations. And it would never allow for the kind of science-driven creative projects necessary for a productive and flourishing society. Indeed, in devising this plan, Keynes admitted to drawing on Hitler's economic minister Yalmar Schacht's plan to use clearing arrangements to permit the Third Reich to continue importing raw materials for its military buildup in the 1930s. Two systems, Roosevelt's system of credit and Keynes's system of central banking, guided the discussions at Bretton Woods. The question was, which would be adopted in the international framework for the post-war world? In 1943, Keynes had told White that the United Kingdom would not go on a dollar standard and rejected that the dollar should be given any sort of special status. Every time the subject was brought up, he categorically refused to discuss it. He denounced it when it was brought up at the UN conference in Atlantic City and submitted statements to the press saying the plan would not even be brought up for consideration. And of course, the statement of principles, as it was submitted to the Bretton Woods Conference, clearly stated that the par value of a member's currency shall be expressed in terms of gold. Deployed by Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Dexter White took a series of three brilliant steps, not only to his closest associates, and changed the course of history, by making sure the U.S. dollar became the reserve currency and cornerstone for the Bretton Woods system. On July 6th, at the 2.30 p.m. meeting of Committee 2, White made his first move. White submitted an alternative, known as Alternative A, which provided that the par value of the currency of each member shall be expressed in terms of gold as a common denominator or in terms of a gold convertible currency unit of the weight and finest in effect on July 1, 1944. And with the insertion of that key phrase, gold convertible currency unit, and White's nonchalant presentation of the alternative, acting as if the matter had already been decided and was obviously necessary, led to the approval of the alternative that day with no further discussion. The alternative became part of the massive material accrued by the various committees and its far-reaching implications went unnoticed. The next move by White was made one week later, July 13th, at a meeting of Commission 1, where White himself was the chairman. Before the meeting, he let Morgenthau know that the commission meeting that afternoon was crucial for what happened the rest of the conference. The Indian delegation, recalling that Keynes had over and over again made statements that gold convertible currency did not exist, asked for a clarification on the definition of gold convertible currency. British delegate Robertson, against Keynes' instructions, suggested that the vague phrase gold and gold convertible currency be replaced by gold and U.S. dollars, and the subsequent changes this shift required be made. White, as chairman, referred the matter to a special committee which he would then head up. That night, White made his final move. The special committee met late in the evening and worked until 3 o'clock in the morning preparing the final draft of the IMF document with the special provision of gold and U.S. dollars included in it. The next day, White reported to Morgenthau that the draft on the International Monetary Fund was in excellent shape and the seemingly small change from gold 
the gold and U.S. dollars, was lost in the expanse of the 96-page document presented to the delegates a few days later. Keynes didn't find out about the change until later, when he finally read the completed act. Finally, after weeks of negotiations and many other maneuvers pulled off by the Americans, and after at least one mild heart attack suffered by Keynes, the final details of the International Monetary Fund and the Bank for Reconstruction and Development were hammered out, and the Bretton Woods agreements were complete. The 44 nations who had participated in the agreements participated in an international framework of fixed exchange rate currencies all pegged to the dollar, which was pegged to gold at $35 an ounce. But this was no gold standard or even dollar standard system. The agreements operated off of a gold reserve system, meaning a nation need only have enough gold in their treasury to account for trade imbalances. Dollars were to be used as credit for funding large-scale infrastructure and development projects and for cooperation between nations. The job of the IMF was to keep the fixed exchange rate stable. Nations were not allowed to upvalue or devalue their currency without going through a series of stopgap measures to ensure the whole system itself remained stable. This way, though the agreements made sure to have flexible exchange rates during the transition period, immediately following the war, when the economic standing of certain nations was not yet determined, ultimately the goal was to create a fixed, stable system of exchange rates so that nations could not only have prosperous trade relationships, but so that projects, long-term projects lasting 25 to 50 years, could be financed and built without massive fluctuations in cost. Therefore, a project to connect Europe and Asia by rail could be built over a period of approximately 25 years at a relatively the same ending cost for the nations involved as had been projected from the start. Building materials, such as iron or other metals for the rail tracks, power systems, energy supplies, could all be obtained and traded under the fixed exchange rate system at a reasonable cost with low rates of interest. And this was only the tip of the iceberg of what the Bretton Woods Agreement, under their original form and with the power of the Franklin Roosevelt's USA behind them, could do. With Roosevelt at the helm, the Americans had succeeded in bringing the credit system of the United States, the system that had gotten us out of the Depression and built up the arsenal of democracy, to the international stage. And when Roosevelt was dying, while in office, shortly after his installation, fourth inauguration, Dalton went into the office to meet with the president and came out gray-faced, saying to a friend of mine who was with him at the time, it's over, it's over. Under these conditions, the intention of the formation of the United Nations and the intention of the Bretton Woods system was subverted because the intention had been to free colonial nations by large-scale infrastructural projects and other things of development of these nations and to protect them while they emerged from colonial status into sovereign nation-state private. So therefore, the purpose, Roosevelt's purpose for the Bretton Woods system uh, was not carried out. Under these conditions, 
where the British were taking more and more of a controlling role over the Anglo-American policy in the post-war period, the policies tended to go in the direction of Keynes' speech in 1944. So Roosevelt's intention was not Keynesian, but the British intention and Truman's intention was. Franklin Roosevelt, a great man who had led the United States and the world to victory over fascism and oppression, was replaced by a very little man, Harry S. Truman, and the United States was never the same again. The British Empire, who Franklin Roosevelt vowed to use the might and resources of the United States of America to defeat, moved in to take over the U.S. presidency. But the ghost of Roosevelt still haunted the British in the form of the Bretton Woods system. They knew that mere corruption of the United States would not work. The mechanism by which the United States credit system could operate internationally had to be removed. And so, with the consent of the new President of the United States, a traitor to Roosevelt and his nation, Harry S. Truman, the plans were laid to first corrupt and finally destroy the Bretton Woods system. But even for the British, this would be a task to accomplish. The system of Bretton Woods functioned by maintaining a strong and powerful dollar. Nations were allowed to demand gold instead of dollars for certain transactions if they deemed the dollar was too weak or unstable. So as long as the U.S. dollar was being widely issued as credit for projects to benefit the welfare and productive power of other nations, and as long as the United States economy itself was prosperous and powerful, the dollar had a strong value directly tied to the industrial strength and growth of our economy. But the British Empire knew that if the dollar was widely issued for speculative purposes, and if the U.S. dropped its role as an economic powerhouse, the dollar would not accrue any actual value and would face collapse. For hundreds of years since the recoinage of 1696 by propagandist John Locke and then warden of the mint Isaac Newton, the British, as the Venetians before them, used their control of money or gold to manipulate world finance. Currency devaluation and speculation was one of their chief methods of economic warfare. The devaluation of the British pound in 1931 created such chaos in international markets and trade that it was a major factor in the length and depth of the ensuing economic depression. So following the creation of the Bretton Woods system, the British reverted to their old tricks to get rid of it. Since the end of World War II, the British pound had been known as the sick man of the system. Throughout the war, they had accumulated an enormous influx of sterling debts and knew that if they canceled or decreased their debts, London would decline as a banking center, and there would be a rapid disintegration of the empire and the commonwealth. If the debts remained, however, devaluation was imminent. However, the British Empire never intended to get rid of Britain's sterling debts in the first place. They wanted Britain to continue being the sick man of the system, to serve their own sinister purposes. And since the British pound sterling was the second reserve currency, second only to the dollar, they knew that any sharp shift in the value of Britain's currency would send shockwaves through the entire fixed exchange rate system and would destabilize the dollar. 
The first devaluation came in 1949. Under the rules of Bretton Woods, no country was allowed to devalue their currency by more than 1.5% without the consent of the IMF, and by no more than 8% without the consent of the other 44 nations invested in the fund. Despite these regulations, the British, with the consent of the Truman government to back them up, unlawfully devalued their pound by a whopping 30.5%, bringing the value from $4.03 to $2.80. It was the job of the IMF to use loans and other funds to stabilize the pound, and the enactment of the Marshall Plan for Reconstruction of Europe should have rebuilt the British economy to the point where it had a stable currency. The British rejected all of these safeguards. They rejected the Marshall Plan, and the pound sterling continued to plummet and fluctuate throughout the 50s and 60s. To keep the value of the pound sterling down and to continue devaluation, the British were willing to destroy their very own people in their nation and commonwealth. Starting in the 50s, the British began a systemic takedown of their infrastructure and a destruction of their economy. Unemployment soared to record highs. In 1958, while European currencies became convertible to the dollar and foreign exchange markets across the world opened up, the British people were not allowed to enjoy currency convertibility to the dollar. Similarly, the British put enormous taxes on imported goods and goods containing raw materials imports, all the while increasing exports. They essentially created cheap labor conditions in Britain and the Commonwealth. Advocates of the devaluation policy said that the only way long-term benefits of devaluation could be secured was if the people simply bore the cost. Wages would have to be lower, domestic consumption would have to be reduced, and government spending on health care, welfare, and other social services would have to be cut. The British acted in a manner against the very principles of the United States. They did not act as a sovereign nation. A nation has a commitment to the welfare of its own citizenry. The British Empire was willing to destroy Britain and the Commonwealth for the purposes of defending the empire. In the United States, Britain's currency manipulations caused runs on U.S. gold. International markets looking at the weak value of sterling stopped putting faith into the strength of the U.S. dollar. Meanwhile, Following the war, plans to convert the U.S. war machine for peacetime economic reconstruction and development were limited. The United States under Truman shifted toward a consumer society. The U.N. development programs promised by FDR to rebuild the third world never got off the ground, and by the 1960s, the development decades were doing more harm than good, advocating green technology and sustainable development over high-tech infrastructure and productive power. But it wasn't until Harold Wilson's labor government that Britain's policy of devaluation was really put into effect, and the final offensive against Bretton Woods was run. In November 1967, IMF Managing Director Pierre-Paul Schweitzer, who was avidly against the Bretton Woods system and a very close friend of London's Bank of England, was approached by Wilson for a loan of $3 billion to save the pound. In what was a clear setup, Schweitzer, going against the original purpose of the IMF, turned down the request of Great Britain. 
one week later on November 17th, using the rejection by the IMF as an excuse, the pound was devalued by 14.3%. The London gold pool began to immediately sell off England's gold to meet the $35 an ounce price. This created a panic that the dollar was also weakening. In 1968, there was a huge run on U.S. gold. Meanwhile, the London gold market, which had been shut down by FDR, but was revived under the consent of traders in the United States as a separate entity under no regulation by Bretton Woods, raised the price of their gold to $44 an ounce, creating a two-tiered gold market and a haven for speculators. Financial speculators would trade U.S. gold purchased at $35 an ounce into the London gold market and get back $44, making a 25% profit essentially for free. The rampant speculation forced a devaluation of the dollar and led to even more panic. Monetary crises began crashing in waves. Other countries, their currencies in ruins because of the instability in the fixed exchange rate system, began to float their currencies. Canada, a member of the British Commonwealth, instituted a permanent float to its currency first, setting a precedent for other nations to follow suit. Finally, in 1970, Schweitzer demanded that the U.S. use its gold reserves to finance its deficits. But the U.S. was low on gold reserves to begin with. The United States had held nearly two-thirds of the world's gold right after the Bretton Woods agreements were signed. But after the crises of 69 and 70, it was left with less than 10% of its former gold reserves. With little faith internationally in the U.S. dollar, and following violent shocks in the markets, the United States took itself off the fixed exchange rate system. The murder of Franklin Roosevelt's legacy was now complete. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy, and the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. The takedown of Bretton Woods opened the door for London's financial predators to come in to destroy the United States. The IMF and the World Bank, institutions intended by Roosevelt to save developing nations from the British Empire, became the tools used to enslave them. Our U.S. dollar was torn from the physical economy of the United States and became an instrument of speculation. It was no longer a tool of credit as conceived by the founders of our Republican Constitution. And with no leadership, with no productive mission orientation guiding the development of our citizenry, the United States took down its industrial economy, with the final remnants of the U.S. machine tools sector dismantled in 2008. And now we are in the midst of the greatest economic collapse in history.
nearly 30 years to murder the spirit of Franklin Roosevelt in the form of the Bretton Woods system. And it took them another 40 to wipe him out of the memory of the citizenry of the United States. Ultimately, however, the death or life of his soul lies not with the British Empire. It is not their manipulations of nations that will destroy his legacy. He is dead only if we allow him to die. With a revival now of the principles on which he operated, the principles embedded in our great Constitution, and a revival of the idea of a credit system for not only the United States but the world, through a new Bretton Woods agreement between the United States, Russia, China, and India, we can revive the spirit of FDR. We can continue the work that Roosevelt began to develop sovereign nations across the globe and to raise the standard of living of the world. And we would revive his mission not for his sake, but for ours and for the sake of all humanity. Now, we're here this afternoon to talk about Bretton Woods, the Bretton Woods Conference, uh, and a new book about it, The Battle of Bretton Woods, written by Ben Steele. Um, you may ask why, nearly 70 years after that momentous gathering in a remote New Hampshire town, and more than 40 years since the gold standard it established was undone by President Nixon, uh, why should anyone care about Bretton Woods anymore? Well, uh, because it's, it's still not infrequently looked back upon rather wistfully as a sort of Camelot moment in world financial history, the first time a global monetary system uh, was designed and an international body set up to manage it. And a certain mythology has grown up about the creation back in 1944 of this new world economic order. Uh, as Ben notes in the introduction of his book, uh, there have been serious calls uh, in the decades since, uh, serious calls from time to time for a new Bretton Woods. Uh, so it's important to look closely at just how Bretton Woods came to be, uh, its successes and its flaws. Ben does just that, um, and as an expert in the world's financial systems, he's very well suited to the task. 
He studied economics at Wharton and Oxford, then directed the International Economics Program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London for a time, before coming to the Council on Foreign Relations 14 years ago. At the Council, he's a senior fellow and director of international economics. He's also the founding editor of International Finance, a scholarly economics journal, as well as a co-founder and managing member of Efficient Frontiers, which is a markets consulting firm. His several previous books received critical acclaim, and he's written articles and spoken widely on international finance, securities trading, and financial market, market regulation. At the center of the story that Ben tells about Bretton Woods is the drama between two pivotal figures who dominated the discussions, Britain's John Maynard Keynes and America's Harry Dexter. And they really were opposites. Keynes, witty, eloquent, self-assured, a celebrity economist, and Dexter, a U.S. Treasury official, driven, short-tempered, bullying. Their rivalry enlivens the book and contrasts with the often simplistic portrayal of Bretton Woods as one of amiable collaboration. As one reviewer put it, Keynes and Dexter were as different from each other as afternoon tea and bourbon. Uh, and there's a, a, another remarkable twist to, uh, to Dexter uh, that Ben explores in the book, and I'm sure he'll be talking about in a minute. I won't give that away. Um, a number of reviewers have, com have commended the Battle of Bretton Woods for being an exhaustively researched and fascinating read. Uh, they also have noted how instructive and well-timed it is, given present-day concerns about the shaky condition of the world economy and worries about where things like quantitative easing and crazily fluctuating exchange rates are taking us. As one reviewer in Forbes magazine quipped, President Obama would be wise to take Ben's book to Martha's Vineyard this summer. <laughs> ben plans to speak for a little while, and then he'll leave time for questions because we do record these events so that we can post them uh, on, our, on our site. Uh, and create a, an archive of events, we do ask that if you have a question, you make it to that microphone or that microphone uh, there so that, uh, so that we, uh, we can hear your question and it can get picked up on tape. And then afterwards, uh, Ben would be delighted to stay and sign copies of his book, which are available at the cash registers up front. Uh, so if you haven't already, please silence your cell phones and join me in welcoming Ben Steele. Thanks so much, Brad. It's really a pleasure and privilege to speak at this Book Lovers Mecca of Politics and Prose. And thank you all for coming out on a gorgeous uh, Sunday afternoon. Can you all hear me? Microphone working? Okay, okay. I okay. How's that? A little better? Okay, I'll, I'll do, do my best. Um, so I appreciate you all coming out on this gorgeous uh, Sunday afternoon to hear about uh, Bretton Woods, which is not the story of abstruse economic ideas it's normally associated with. It's a, actually a, a, a fascinating geopolitical story with a great cast of leading characters, as um, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll see. Um, a little bit of a scene setting. Um, uh, the Bretton Woods uh, uh, Conference of 1944 is the most important international gathering since the Paris Peace Talks in 1919, a quarter century earlier. 
takes place in July of 1944, only a few weeks after the D-Day landings at uh, Normandy. So there's a real sense of sort of anxious optimism in the air among the over 700 delegates from uh, 44 nations. And indeed, um, uh, President Roosevelt wanted to use this gathering to send a message to the enemy Axis powers that it was the Americans and the Allies that had the compelling vision for the post-war world. He thought this might actually serve to bring the war to a conclusion earlier. Um, the actual substance of the event, however, was not scripted by Roosevelt, who had little interest in um, uh, international economics. He was, he was focused on winning, winning the war. Um, it was scripted by um, the U.S. Treasury. Uh, two people in particular, um, uh, Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau, who really didn't know very much about um, economics. He described himself as an apple farmer, a gentleman apple farmer, but an apple farmer nonetheless. But he was a very close personal friend of um, uh, FDRs from uh, Hyde Park in, in New York. So he had the president's ear, but he basically had nothing to whisper into it. The ideas all came from one man with whom he formed a sort of symbiotic bond over 11 years from 1934 to 1946, Harry Dexter White, um, truly one of the most mm -hmm. remarkable political figures of the 20th century that nobody knows anything about. And we're going to talk a, a little bit about him later. Um, FDR's treasury, Morgenthau and White uh, in, in particular, are what you might call economic determinists. They had a very specific um, a story about um, uh, how the war came about. Uh, they blamed the currency wars of the early 1930s, particularly after Britain left the gold exchange standard in, in uh, 1931. In their rendering, this led to the um, trade wars that spread the Great Depression internationally and created the environment of misery and anger that paved the way for the European dictators like uh, Hitler and Mussolini to launch their wars of aggression. So they very much saw the new International Monetary Fund and World Bank that they were going to create as Bretton Woods as being necessary political complements to the United Nations that would be created one year later at San Francisco. But this was not some sort of abstract internationalist ideal. I have to emphasize that hardcore American national interest was very much at stake, center focus here put Bretton Woods in a wider context in the 1940s. Uh, countries that wanted to trade in the 1940s could do it in only one of three ways. They could barter, and many of them did. That's what they were reduced to. Or they could use gold or U.S. dollars. But the United States controlled two-thirds of the world's monetary gold stock um, at the time. So we're really talking about a, a dollar-starved world that is at Bretton Woods to find out what the United States is going to do about this. And Harry Dexter White in particular is quite determined to exploit um, this unique uh, situation in, in uh, uh, American history to sort of remake the global balance of power after the war. And this is Harry Dexter White, I'm quoting him now, uh, at the conference speaking to the American delegation before they go off into the negotiations, trying to get through to them um, how important this conference is and why the Americans hold all the cards. He says it is gold in Fort Knox. He says this is why the United States was, quote, in such a powerful position at this conference. It's why we dominate the financial world. If only England was in that position, it would be a very different story. 
it might seem quite remarkable in the, the current context, but in the 1930s and 40s, people like Harry Dexter White saw Great Britain as being um, America's natural geopolitical rival in the world. And after the war would, would end, they saw Britain naturally as continuing to be America's great geopolitical rival. So this was an event in which the United States would sort of remake the, the script so Britain would no longer be a, a rival in the post-war world. What's fascinating about White, though, is that he's obsessed with Britain from quite an uh, early time in his tenure at Treasury. I found a, a memorandum in his file dated 1936. This is two years after he arrives at the U.S. Treasury. He's barely more than a bureaucratic temp there. He's nobody important, in which he writes, the more sterling countries there are, countries that use the pound sterling or that are linked to the pound sterling, the stronger will be England's position around a conference table should an international conference take place. So nobody's talking about such an international conference, but he's already planning one um, in his mind. And at this conference, he has determined that the United States will best Great Britain. So Bretton Woods is actually part of a larger geopolitical agenda hatched within FDR's um, treasury to eliminate Great Britain as a political and economic rival in the post-war period. Uh, Henry Morgenthau, after FDR died, was explaining to President Truman what he had set out to do at Bretton Woods in 1944, and this is how he characterized it. He said, I wanted to, quote, move the financial center of the world from London and Wall Street to the United States Treasury. Note the and Wall Street part. Uh, this was very much an anti-banker agenda as well, which was critical to the, 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 the New Deal. So this is the New Deal, as it were, writ, writ global. Um, at Bretton Woods, he tells the American delegates, uh, Morgenthau, now the advantage is ours here, and I personally think we should take it, to which White adds, if the advantage was theirs, that is Britain, they would take it. Now, uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill famously um, referred to American Lend-Lease aid during the war as, quote-unquote, the most unsorted act. I would emphasize that Lend-Lease actually came with um, a, a very painful geopolitical uh, terms uh, attached to it. Um, this was very much an act of self-interest. It was part of a Faustian bargain that Britain uh, was forced to agree with the United States to get through a war. And these were the components of it. America would give Britain short-term financial assistance to get through the war in the form of Lend-Lease and brief post-war transitional financial assistance, all in terms of loans, not in terms of grants. Some of you may realize some connections with the current Eurozone crisis, which Germany is determined to resolve only through loans and not through uh, grants in return for which the British will agree to three things. First, to end so-called imperial trade preference. This is the uh, arrangement by which Britain gave itself privileged access to the markets of its colonies and dominions. FDR's administration were fundamentally anti-colonialist. They viewed themselves as being um, representatives of the great anti-colonial power, the United States. Of course, American exporters were also very much against imperial trade preference because this limited the markets that they could export to. Um, second, um, Britain would uh, once again make the pound sterling fully convertible into U.S. dollars at a fixed exchange rate. This was a mortal threat to British solvency. 
Um, the deadline that was set was um, ultimately July 15, 1947, for the British, a sort of day that will live in infamy. The day Britain literally went bankrupt, and that bankruptcy was scripted by the U.S. Treasury. Um, and finally, Britain would accept the U.S. dollar as the basic unit of account for global trade after the war. This was uh, the, uh, the fundamental defining element of the Bretton Woods Agreement. And why did Britain agree to such a thing? Well, as a British uh, delegate uh, and a famous economist in his own right, Lionel Robbins, put it at Bretton Woods, and I quote, we needed the cash. It was really that simple. And in fact, the collapse of British imperial power after the war, particularly in late 46 and early 47, when all the pillars of Britain's um, uh, empire come crumbling now, Burma, Greece, Palestine, India, this was all driven by a lack of, of dollars. And this, this lack of dollars was, was specifically scripted by the U.S. Treasury. Seems, again, remarkable in today's context, but the United States during World War II was spontaneously more generous to China and the Soviet Union than they were with Great Britain, again, because we saw the British as being the natural um, uh, political rival after the war. I would emphasize that this vision at Bretton Woods of the post-war world, which had three major elements. First, that the British Empire could be quickly and peaceably dismantled. Two, that Germany could be dismembered and deindustrialized, the so-called Morgenthau Plan. And three, that the Soviets could be permanently co-opted into a, a peacetime alliance. These three pillars were entirely overthrown just three years later with the Marshall Plan. The central elements of the Marshall Plan were that uh, Britain is no longer a geopolitical rival. It's a desperate ally that must be saved from Im imminent collapse and a potential communist takeover that Germany needed to be rehabilitated and turned into the industrial engine of a new integrated Western Europe, Western Europe being very much an American um, con conception, certainly not a European one, and finally that the, the Soviets could not be co-opted and in fact needed to be contained in George uh, Kennan's words. Um, a little bit about the two main characters at Bretton Woods who are truly fascinating, John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White. These are two men who had a sort of grudging admiration for each other. In case of White, um, uh, he uh, really worshipped Keynes as a, a, a thinker. He was determined to best him, but he worshipped him as a thinker. He used to get himself literally physically sick in preparation for negotiations with Keynes because he didn't want to humiliate himself in front of his colleagues. Nobody wanted to debate Lord Keynes. This was a brutal experience. Um, Keynes, for his part did not uh, think per, uh, very much of White as a thinker, but he knew that he was enormously influential in terms of policymaking in FDR's administration. Here's what Keynes said about um, White shortly after meeting him for the first time in the early 1940s. He said, he has not the faintest conception how to behave or observe the rules of civilized intercourse. <laughs> um, these are two men from entirely different backgrounds, and they're very conscious of it. John Maynard Keynes is the son of upper-middle-class um, uh, Cambridge academics. He was raised by a governess and servants. He was expected to go on to great things. Harry Dexter White was the um, youngest of seven children born in Boston to Lithuanian Jewish immigrants in 1892. His father was a hardware peddler. He actually dropped out of college during his first attempt in order to go back into the family hardware business. He's 
two people come from very different backgrounds, and they're very conscious of it. There's um, a, a lovely um, vignette about their negotiations in 1943. They've been sparring now for a year and a half on whose plan would win out, the Keynes plan or the White plan. Um, uh, Keynes gets fed up with, with um, a White and his, his plans. He takes the White plan and hurls it to the floor and says, this is intolerable. It is yet another Talmud. Uh, Keynes is very conscious of the fact that White is Jewish. His key deputies, Eddie Bernstein, Jewish. Henry Morgenthau himself was Jewish, and this would come out when he was frustrated. Uh, to which White responded, we will try to produce something which your highness can understand. <laughs> uh, Keynes at Bretton Woods was not just the most famous economist of his age, indeed the 20th century, perhaps even of all time, but he was the first ever celebrity economist. Today we're used to celebrity economists, uh, people like Paul Krugman and Nouriel Roubini who jet around the world with the media hanging on their every pronouncement. But at Bretton Woods, this was a brand new thing. Uh, the American media was there to hear what the great man thought. They didn't necessarily like it, and in many uh, cases, um, the big national newspapers, and, and particularly the, the New York Times, thought that Bretton Woods was really just a British trick to steal um, um, American gold but they had to hear what the great man thought. And the Americans bitterly resented it. In fact, um, Henry Morgenthau refused to let Keynes speak on the first day of the conference, even refused to let him nominate Morgenthau to be the president of the conference because he wanted to keep him away from the media. Uh, Harry Dexter White relegated Keynes to be head of the commission to create the World Bank at Bretton Woods because he, Harry Dexter White, would head the commission to create the International Monetary Fund where the dollar would be enthroned as the world's currency and he was determined to keep Keynes far away from this. Um, Keynes is extremely astute in terms of understanding what the Americans are up to um, in the years running up to um, Bretton Woods. He explains to the British government that the uh, Americans may use um, Britain's impending bankruptcy as, quote-unquote, an opportunity for picking out the eyes of the British Empire uh, to make uh, Great Britain a, quote-unquote, satellite of the United States and to impose the American conception of the international economic system on the, war, uh, 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 on the world. But he also explains to the British government, look, you want to engineer new post-war social and economic policies, but it will be impossible to do that without further American assistance. And he said, I'm quoting again, the Americans are strong enough to offer inducements to many or most of our friends to walk out on us. So he knows the situation. Despite this, Keynes may literally be the world's worst diplomat. He, he is in every official trip to Washington in the course of his career, a supplicant. Every visit he ever made to Washington from World War II to World War II, World War I to World War II was a begging mission. But he never behaved as a supplicant. He was determined to best whoever he was in the room with in, in verbal sparring. His command of logic was superior. His concerns, command of the facts and rhetoric was superior. And he humiliated the Americans. Uh, every time, but they had no reason to, to take it. Um, uh, here's a nice little account of his first official trip to Washington, a begging mission in 1917 during uh, World War One. The comments came back uh, to London that the man was, and I quote, rude, dogmatic, and disobliging, 
Another set of comments, he was too offensive for words. Who spoke these words? The British ambassador and his financial secretary. The Americans actually said much worse about it. But the question ultimately has to be asked, since it was the White plan that um, uh, made it through Bretton Woods, not the Keynes plan. Could anybody have done better than Keynes? Uh, And my answer is yes. Um, there were options available to, to Britain. Um, uh, Britain did not have to accept American terms at Bretton Woods, and indeed there were some very prominent British civil servants who were scathing about Keynes. In particular, one senior British Treasury civil servant named Sir Richard Clark, Otto Clark, who said Keynes was overly wedded to the idea of a grand design, as he put it. We didn't need to borrow this money from the U.S. Treasury with all these geopolitical terms. We could have borrowed it privately. We could have borrowed from the Export-Import Bank in the United States, which didn't have these geopolitical constructs behind it. We could have borrowed more from the Canadians. And indeed, there was a rear-guard action against the FDR administration in uh, May of 1944, just before Bretton Woods. The British financial secretary in Washington met with a group of prominent New York bankers, Um, In May of 1945, the bankers were very anti-New Deal, very much uh, against the IMF, which would compete with its international lending business and offer the British a deal. You walk away from this conference, and we will provide you with um, $3 billion, at least $3 billion of concessionary loans. Keynes turned it down flat. Why? Keynes was very obsessed with his legacy. He wanted to be known as the man who overthrew the gold standard and replaced it with a new managed international monetary system. He didn't like White's system, but he believed that that system would eventually fall of its own accord. Indeed, just a few years ago, in 2009, the Chinese central bank governor, Zhou, came out with a rather remarkable statement where he said that Bretton Woods may have been a terrible mistake. We never should have taken the White plan. We should have taken the Keynes plan for a new international currency that would have replaced the U.S. dollar. Keynes was just hoping that the world would come to this realization much sooner, but it didn't. Um, Harry Dexter White. Um, Again, uh, White is, in my view, one of the most fascinating um, American political figures of the 20th century that nobody knows anything uh, about. Um, As I said, he was the son of a hardware peddler. Uh, went back to college at age 30 after deciding finally he was bored of the hardware business. And there he had a sort of epiphany of sorts. He told a friend that he had come to the conclusion that um, most governmental problems are fundamentally economic. Therefore, I decided to stick with economics. This is a man who is truly uh, fascinated with politics and views economics as a means to an end. And he's very interested from his early adult life in what might be politely characterized as non-mainstream politics. For example, in 1924, at age 32, um, he's a passionate uh, supporter of fighting Bob LaFollette's independent progressive party campaign for the presidency on a foundation of ending American imperialism in Latin America and nationalizing key industries in the United States. In 1948, uh, the year of his death, he was a passionate supporter of Henry Wallace's independent progressive party campaign for the president. Wallace, some of you may remember, had broken with Truman over what he saw as Truman's hardline policy towards the Soviets. Wallace was very romantic about the Soviet revolution, believed it as a great, to be a great liberating event in, in um, human history. Um, 
White goes on to do a PhD at Harvard but can't get tenure there. He winds up in a small college in Appleton, Wisconsin. He's not happy there. He um, sends a letter to his former supervisor at Harvard saying that he decided to study Russian. Um, he was going to get a scholarship to go to Moscow to study economic planning. But before he can go forward with his plan, he gets an invitation uh, to go to Washington for a few months to work on a pretty low-level study of international monetary and um, uh, banking institutions. And to make a very long story very short, he just makes himself indispensable there to the Treasury Secretary, um, Henry Morgenthau. Um, but White also is involved in some freelancing, as it were, some diplomatic freelancing. To put it in context, 1933, a seminal event, the FDR administration um, recognizes diplomatically the Soviet Union. This was a major event. 1934, the Soviet Union joins the League of Nations. This is the background um, uh, against which uh, White gets enmeshed um, in a web of, um, shall we say, fellow travelers um, who are feeding information to the Soviet Union. The most famous um, spy he was involved with was Whitaker Chambers. Um, he meets Whitaker Chambers in 1935. He feeds him classified information. He starts advocating for Soviet policy positions in administration debates. He places key people of interest to the Soviets in positions um, in the U.S. Um, government. There are lots of um, remarkable vignettes about how he influences policy in the Soviet um, interest. For example, in 1944, he was insistent that the U.S. give the currency plates for the occupation of Germany. The U.S. was going to produce um, occupation marks for um, Germany. He's insistent on giving these plates to the Soviets. The Soviets take the plates, print massive amounts of currency, cash it in in Washington at the fixed exchange rate established by Harry Dexter White, rating the U.S. Treasury for, in current dollar terms, about $6 billion. Um, at the time, in the um, uh, mid-1940s, he was about as important to Soviet intelligence as Alger Hiss. But he's not nearly so well known today, and why is that? Well, I would characterize the Harry Dexter White spy case like a murder mystery where you have the witnesses, people like Whitaker Chambers and Elizabeth Bentley. Um, you have even more than that. There are um, um, Soviet uh, wartime intelligence cables that are intercepted and decrypted by U.S. military intelligence. This is known as the Venona Project. It's only declassified in the late 1990s. I found 18 of these cables referencing White and his activities, according to his various um, code names. You have the weapon, as it were, were um, um, a handwritten memo of White's turned over by Whitaker Chambers in 1950. Uh, to uh, Richard um, Nixon with classified um, information. They don't have a clear motive. Well, in, in the course of my research, I found a, a long handwritten essay of White's in his archives that apparently nobody had seen before, in which um, he blasts Western, in particular U.S. hypocrisy towards the Soviet Union, extols the virtues of so so Soviet socialism, and concludes um, uh, by paraphrasing the famous American radical journalist Lincoln Steffens, who after visiting Petrograd in 1919 said, I have seen the future and it works. Harry Dexter White says, Russia is the first instance of a socialist economy in action and it works, exclamation point. In terms of his legacy at Bretton Woods, this is the most interesting one, and then I'll, I'll, I'll end. Um, in January of 1946, President Truman nominates Harry Dexter White to be the first 
U.S. Executive Director of the International Monetary Fund, a fund which White had created. He also intends to manage, uh, nominate him to be the first managing director of the fund, the head of the fund. Um, but uh, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover gets wind of this and sends Truman a long memorandum saying, don't even think of it, I can prove that the man is a Soviet agent. Truman doesn't trust Hoover, but knows he has a huge political problem on his hands. He can't appoint another American to sit above Harry Dexter White because that would raise all sorts of questions about why the man was being passed over. So the Americans concoct a new narrative that they take to the British. We, the Americans, have decided, after all, that we don't want the IMF. We want the World Bank in order to secure confidence of the American financial community. This was nonsense. The World Bank was not an important institution to the United States in the 1940s. So the only reason why an American heads the World Bank today and a European heads the IMF is because of President Truman's efforts to cover up the white spy scandal. Truly a remarkable story that comes out of Bretton Woods. With that, I'll stop and open things up for questions. If you have a question, um, Brad tells me you should uh, please uh, approach the microphone so everybody can hear you and we can get it on the um, uh, recording. Yes. Did you find any evidence that uh, any possible prosecution of White was uh, derailed, let's say, by uh, Truman or other administrations? Right. Um, Harry Dexter White voluntarily gave evidence before the House Un-American Activities Committee in August of 1948 to defend himself against um, charges leveled by Whitaker Chambers and Elizabeth Bentley. Um, uh, by um, all accounts, he put in a bravado performance. The uh, peanut gallery was actually applauding um, his sparring with the members of this um, delegation, um, the uh, committee. Um, but there was one member of the committee who was actually very sober um, and very narrowly focused, determined to get White on a perjury charge. This was 35-year-old Congressman Richard Nixon, right. who kept asking White, do you know Whitaker Chambers? Have you met Whitaker Chambers? To which White continuously responded, I do not recall. Two days later, White dies of a heart attack. It's fascinating to speculate what might have happened had he lived. As we know, Alger Hiss was ultimately convicted right. only of perjury. White himself potentially could have been uh, convicted of perjury. Another interesting historical counterfactual, uh, Henry Wallace, had he implausibly become uh, president, was going to make Harry Dexter White his treasury secretary. So we can infer maybe if, if fate had not felled White, we would never have heard of Alger Hiss. Um, uh, Whitaker Chambers in um, his famous uh, autobiography, a witness emphasizes um, uh, two characters, um, uh, Harry Dexter White and Alger Hiss. So Alger Hiss was clearly quite important to Soviet intelligence. It's just that um, uh, White was much more important than the public in the United States ever realized, and that's probably because of his untimely death. Thank you. Yeah, I Oh, sorry, on Stereo. Yep. I think I remember reading maybe two or three years ago that some documents had been found, I think transcripts or so, of Bretton Woods, yes, that's correct. Um, which had been forgotten, 
Could yeah. you talk about those and how much help they were to you? Yeah, um, I actually got access to them relatively late in my writing process. The um, editors of the transcripts were kind enough to, to share them uh, with me. They didn't change fundamentally my um, view of um, how the event went, um, which had been based mainly on archival um, material from the IMF and um, particularly the so-called Morgenthau diaries. These were transcripts of all Morgenthau's private um, uh, discussions. Um, Bretton Woods was really an American kabuki play um, scripted by White. Most of the activity went on um, privately in Henry Morgenthau's uh, suite. He presided over the conference like a sort of godfather, and at 15-minute intervals, the heads of the various foreign delegations would come to his suite to plead their case for, for example, higher quotas in the IMF. Having said that, there was one episode that I was really struggling with, um, uh, that I, I couldn't find the details of until I got the transcripts, which is actually quite important. So uh, let me let me tell this little story. Harry Dexter White, as I told you, was determined to make the U.S. dollar the unrivaled global currency after the war. Keynes and the British, needless to say, refused to ratify anything of the sort. They had a big row about it one month before Bretton Woods at Atlantic City in a sort of uh, dress rehearsal. So White decides, I'm not going to argue with Keynes anymore. I will take care of this at the conference. And this comes across in the transcript. White has in the draft IMF articles of agreement this phrase scattered throughout gold convertible currency. At one point in the committee discussions, the Indian delegate gets fed up and says, it's high time that the Americans told us, what is a gold convertible currency? Harry Dexter White, very excited, says, thank you very much. We will refer this to a technical committee. The technical committee is entirely um, comprised by his hand-picked American staff. They go through the entire document replacing gold convertible currency with U.S. dollars. As Keynes and the other British delegation heads are being told to check out of the hotel and, by the way, sign the Articles of Agreement when you leave, Keynes did not have time to read it and, in fact, complained bitterly about it um, uh, after the event. He went back to White saying, we have to have changes. Of course, White wouldn't agree to any material um, changes. So there are some stories that do come out of the transcripts which are very valuable, but it doesn't change my view that this was fundamentally an American scripted event. Before I uh, get to a couple of comments and a question, let me offer a touristic or travel note for the benefit of members of the audience. I've been to the Mount Washington Hotel where the conference was held. I've been there a number of times, and I was there in 1994 when they had a splendid 50th anniversary retrospective on the conference. And if you haven't been there, it's a lovely part of New Hampshire. It's uh, uh, very pretty, and it's in the shadow or in the lee of the, the Mount Washington uh, of Mount Washington, so it's, it's beautiful verandas. It's it's worth a visit, and there is the Gold Room, which is usually roped off, but that's where the uh, I think the documents were signed, and uh, it's it's a good place to visit if you're up that way. Thank you, Ben. You've got some terrific insights and stories. You've done a lot of excellent research, um, and it sounds like a very interesting book, which is certainly the most important thing I can say. But let me ask about 
two matters that I think are related. You seem to assign um, uh, the devil's role to Harry Dexter White in making the U.S. dollar come out of Bretton Woods and out of World War II as the dominant currency. And while I don't have any reason to, to doubt your, your research about White and his intentions, I wonder whether you're giving him more credit than he really deserves, given the way the war was going and the the uh, necessity of United States intervention on the Western Front uh, for the war to end the way it did. Uh, similarly, uh, I want to ask a particular question. In other words, so it's a question of context. Similarly, about his lending the plates for the occupation marks, uh, lending or giving the plates to the Soviets. I hadn't heard that before. That's interesting, but. Again, did the president know about that? Did the secretary know about that? Wasn't this in the context of intense U.S.-Soviet friendship and cooperation and alliance? You make it sound a little bit, you make it sound subversive, and I wonder if it really should be seen that way. Um, Thank you. Sure. The, uh, with regard to the first question, there's no doubt that if there had never been an international monetary fund, the United States dollar would still have been supreme after the war. Having said that, um, White made it such that there was no alternative for the world, that uh, countries that wanted to participate in the IMF for the purpose of borrowing from the IMF um, would uh, have to pay in their subscriptions um, overwhelmingly in uh, gold or the only gold convertible currency, U.S. dollars. So for the purposes, purposes of the IMF Articles of Agreement, the U.S. dollar was the only legal surrogate for gold. So it, it, it made it supremely important. Um, with regard to White's role um, with the uh, occupation currency for post-war Germany, um, most of the players in this debate within the FDR administration, in fact, all of them that I can find, were strongly against it. In particular, the director of the um, Bureau of uh, Engraving. Um, there was an authority vacuum at the time. Morgenthau had no interest in technical issues like this, so he made White responsible for it. Um, White's pleading his case and pretty much getting nowhere. Um, but then he exploits a telegram sent by General Marshall from Europe, who's heard about this discussion. Marshall writes, if you decide to go forward with this plan to give the Soviets the occupation plates, please don't do it until after May 1st. After? May 1st, 1944. White completely mischaracterized. 45. Uh, of, of, uh, sorry, it, it, is in, it is in fact uh, uh, 44. Yeah, this is spring of uh, 40, 44. Before D Day. Before D Day. He, uh, let, me, let me explain what, what he does. Um, White mischaracterizes the memo um, uh, from Marshall um, and tells his colleagues in the discussion that Marshall has, in fact, the, the ch chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have ordered that the plates be delivered to the Soviets. This is a complete mischaracterization of um, uh, Marshall's memorandum. So White basically exploited this authority 
a vacuum within the administration to turn the place over to the uh, Soviets. Uh, Marshall just viewed it as, as being a, a essential to his planning of the military campaign that um, there, there not be occupation currency in the territories before a certain date. Uh, I'm curious about Keynes. Um, two things. First of all, they said Keynes was very sick by this time, yes. and he died shortly after. And I wonder if things would have been different if he had been feeling better. The other thing is Keynes had a very, I think, Keynes made his reputation on a very different explanation of the Depression. Um, and what would his, if he had, if he had his brothers, um, was he? It would appear he was into this national thing, nationalist thing, sterling versus the dollar. But um, what was his vision for sort of the world going forward? And is it, did we end up closer to that uh, with the Marshall Plan? That's a lot of different things. Um, Keynes was in, indeed um, uh, quite ill. He had um, uh, a heart attack uh, at Bretton Woods. He had um, uh, another severe heart attack in um, November of 1945 when he was in Washington for four months negotiating the transitional loan with the um, United States, which went very badly. <clears throat> In fact, so badly for him, the, the uh, new British Labour government in London was um, very angry at his performance. Um, they felt that he had misled them uh, about the prospects for getting a grant from the United States rather than a loan, and they sent somebody to replace him as um, uh, head of the negotiating team. Um, he died um, shortly after the uh, Savannah um, meetings in March of 1946. Um, to inaugurate the IMF um, and the World Bank. I think it's important to emphasize that um, White was very much a, a Keynesian in terms of um, his thinking about how the um, uh, U.S. economy and the global economy should be managed, at least in terms of his public and official um, uh, writings. Um, there was no dispute between Keynes and White on some pretty fundamental issues. For example, we talked today about the Washington Consensus, which emerged from the 1990s. And one key element of it was that, broadly speaking, capital flows across borders should be free. Neither Keynes nor White uh, believed anything of the sort, nothing of the sort. So what were some of the key differences between White and Keynes at Bretton Woods? Um, the biggest one is that um, Keynes wanted to create this new international currency, which he called uh, Bancor, which he hoped over time would supplant not just gold but the U.S. Um, dollar because he was concerned with the prospects for dollar diplomacy becoming um, uh, ever more dangerous for Great Britain. Um, he also wanted the IMF to be a very passive institution. He wanted mm -hmm. it to be an extremely liberal lender um, that would really have um, uh, very little power to impose conditionality on an ad hoc basis. White envisioned the IMF being far more powerful than uh, Keynes. He wanted the staff, staffing, for example, to be 10 times larger than Keynes did. So the IMF we have today is much more similar to White's vision mm -hmm. than it um, uh, was to Keynes. Keynes viewed the IMF more as a mechanism than an institution. 
Thank you. It sounds like a wonderful book. I'm looking forward to reading it. A question on uh, on Keynes as a negotiator. Uh, he was not in the late 20s and early 30s as politically astute as Montague Norman, the head of the central bank, if you look at the Macmillan hearings and others. Based on that and given the record and the quotes that you've had about how little esteem he was held in as a negotiator by his peers in Britain, was there any alternative leader of the delegation, like the Chancellor of the Exchequer or the head of the British uh, Central Bank at that time? That's a, g a great question. I should emphasize that during the 20s and the 30s, Keynes played no um, uh, lead international role. Um, he basically took off the period between the, the wars. Um, he was sent back to Washington in um, the early 1940s as sort of Britain's last-ditch financial ambassador. And that's because the British establishment had failed across the board. Um, there's this beautiful piece of British doggerel from the period which really captures very nicely Britain's view of itself in the world. It says, in Washington, Lord Halifax once whispered to Lord Keynes, it's true they have all the money bags, but we have all the brains. Um, but Halifax failed. Halifax was the British ambassador, failed to loosen America's money strings. Lord Lothian failed to loosen America's money strings. So Britain was desperate. The, none of the British establishment um, was getting um, any significant financial aid from the United States. So they sent the man who was actually behind the scenes crafting policy. I mean, Keynes was brilliant as um, a, a, a ghost writer for those who were on the front line. Nobody understood um, uh, the situation that was Britain was in financially better than uh, Keynes. So uh, they knew that Keynes had one thing in Washington that nobody else had on the British side, and that was this celebrity status. People would listen to him. They were interested in what the great man had to say. So he did, in fact, have an opportunity to influence events, but in my view, he just played his cards very, very badly. He also dissembled with London. Um, he was not winning his battles, but he would continually uh, cable home and tell the House of Lords that everything was going swimmingly. Um, the Americans, you know, they're very legalistic. Lawyers are running everything. They can't write anything down. But I have an understanding with Harry Dexter Dwight. Everything will be fine at Redwood. And of course, it was nothing of the sort. Uh, just a quick small question for you. Uh, Lend-Lease has passed in 1941. Churchill was prime minister. One of the conditions you said was that the British give up the imperial preferences. But I always thought that Churchill said, I'm fighting World War II not to give up the British Empire. That's was he dissembling? Correct. Or? No, he, he had uh, pre pretty significant fights with Roosevelt about so-called Article 7 of the Atlantic Charter, which became a fundamental term of Lend-Lease. Um, he was particularly frustrated with Roosevelt because Roosevelt was so charming. He just refused to engage on the subject. Um, when Churchill made a big fuss about it, Roosevelt, who didn't really see economics as a, a, a tool of um, a geopolitical strategy, at one point you know, um, wrote uh, back to, to um, Churchill that, all was fine, I have no intention of using Lend-Lease as a, a tool for dismantling the British Empire. But his own people at the State Department were absolutely insistent beneath the surface that Article 7 shall stand. 
And indeed, it became a, 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 a fundamental sticking point in late 1945 when the British negotiated the transitional um, loan from the United States after the war. Britain would indeed be obliged to eliminate imperial trade preference, but far more importantly, they would have to make the pound sterling fully convertible by July 15, 1947. To explain to you uh, why this was so critical, because it may seem very abstract, Britain had uh, built up huge war debts, and not all these war debts were in the form of traditional borrowing. Um, uh, they paid their colonies and dominions uh, for goods during the, the war with pound sterling that they refused to convert. So Britain's uh, empire were holding this big stock of sterling, which they wanted to cash in for dollars so they could actually buy something uh, useful. But London wouldn't allow them to. And the British didn't have nearly enough um, gold or dollar reserves in order to uh, allow this to happen. So that's why that was so controversial. So uh, my impression is that when the IMF makes loans, that it, 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 has, it, puts, it has conditions which have, have had important economic and strategic consequences for the countries that accepted them. Uh, was this part of White's plan? Was this built in, in, into the... Uh, what happened at Bretton Woods? Um, yes, White intended that um, uh, the IMF should be a very interventionist institution. Um, uh, for example, countries um, would not be even allowed to devalue their currencies without obeying rules that were laid down um, uh, by the IMF. Um, uh, having said that, um, neither Keynes nor White ever envisioned that the IMF would be a crisis fighter, firefighter, nothing of the sort. In, in both of their visions, the IMF was uh, an institution that would uh, operate in, in basically in times of, of peace and financial stability, just greasing the wheels, as it were. The country got into some balance of payments difficulties that were clearly short-term. The IMF would extend short-term credit. If there were, however, to be a quote-unquote fundamental disequilibrium, that was a technical term um, uh, they uh, used, then countries would have to take their own action in order to rectify the problem. The big one would be currency devaluation. Now, both Keynes and White were very much against our current system or non-system of floating exchange rates. Both of them supported a system of fixed but adjustable exchange rates. White wanted to make it difficult for countries to adjust. Keynes wanted to make it easier for countries to adjust. But um, the um, constant atmosphere of crisis that we've seen um, in the international financial and monetary system since the early 1970s was never something that White and Keynes envisioned the IMF um, uh, being in, in, in involved um, in. They were very much supposed to be an institution that would prevent war, prevent currency war, prevent wide, wider war. But once the war actually broke out, it was supposed to be other institutions that would take over. I, again, the first line of defense was to be a change in national policy, in particular, devaluing one's currency. But the IMF was never supposed to 
um, uh, uh, make loans to get countries through a crisis. If they were already in crisis, that meant that their policies were not correct and needed to be changed. Now, Keynes wanted to impose um, uh, obligations on creditor countries. The United States in the 1940s was the world's largest creditor nation, and he blamed the United States for creating all these problems in the um, uh, international monetary and um, financial system. In fact, um, the United States today, now that we are the world's largest international debtor, use the same language towards China that Britain used towards us in the 1940s. For example, in 2010, former Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner proposed that there should be caps on persistent current account surpluses. This was directed at China. This is pure Keynes. Um, the Chinese, um, in turn, used the same language about the problems with the international monetary and financial system as we used in the 1940s. They say, as we did, that the problem lay with the debtors and their irresponsible fiscal and monetary policy. So where you stand depends on where you sit. Thank you. <laughs> so, Ben, that segues really well into, into my question, and our hour is just about up, so, so we can make this the last one. Um, why can't, then, China and the U.S. make a deal, like Britain and, and the U.S. did? Um, Bretton Woods. Um, uh, Bretton Woods is traditionally seen as this sort of kumbaya moment where the world came together uh, in the um, service of international financial and monetary stability. In fact, um, the reason we got such um, a, a major agreement out of Bretton Woods is because one party held all the cards, um, the United States, and that's not the case today. Um, let me give you a, another example that will help illustrate this. In 1956, the Eisenhower administration was determined to push the British out of Suez. Um, and to get them out, they threatened to provoke a sterling crisis by uh, withholding IMF emergency aid. Now, the United States could afford to do this at no cost to itself because U.S. holdings of British securities were trivial, amounting to about $1 per U.S. resident. Chinese holdings of U.S. securities today amount to over $1,000 per Chinese resident. So if China were to provoke a dollar crisis in order to change American behavior, they would at least in the short run be hurting themselves as much as they would um, uh, be hurting us. And that's why I explain in the epilogue um, of the book that I, I currently do not see any basis for a cooperative um, change in the um, international uh, financial and monetary um, architecture. If there's going to be a fundamental change, I believe it's going to be a, a rupture, as it were, not in a, not a new Bretton Woods. Great. Thank you. Okay, once, once again, books are for sale at the cash registers, and if you'd like, then just sign. Well, uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Daniel Benjamin. On behalf of the John Sloan Dickey Center for International Understanding, I want to welcome you 
to uh, Brenton Woods Then and Now, uh, a lecture with Dr. Ben Steele of the Council on Foreign Relations. This is this year's uh, Obenshain Family Great Issues Lecture, and I particularly want to thank William and Penny Obenshain uh, for their generous support. Uh, as Ben and I were discussing just a moment ago, when uh, politicians and statesmen invoke Bretton Woods, they uh, typically do so with a reverence and a loftiness that is reserved for uh, the Marshall Plan or the San Francisco Conference that laid the foundation for the Uni United Nations. And um, sometimes they do so uh, ahead of, sometimes they did so ahead of time too. I came across this quotation from Fred Vinson, later uh, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who was uh, deputy uh, deputy chair of our delegation, I believe, and he said, "So we fight together on sodden battlefields. Of course, the war was still going on. We sail together." on the majestic blue, and we fly together in the ethereal sky. The test of this conference is whether we can walk together, solve our economic problems, down the road to peace as we today march to victory. Um, well, of course, the Bretton Woods Conference, which was held down the road at the Mount Washington Hotel uh, in July 1944, had more than 700 delegates from 44 allied nations, and it became a byword for that kind of enlightened and positive international cooperation that has appeared only at the rarest of times, but the reality is that it was uh, really anything but that kind of moment of uh, sort of Kantian peace and thoughtfulness and, and fellow feeling. Um, uh, and now at a time when we keep hearing calls for a new Bretton Woods as uh, the European uh, uh, economies are in dire straits and as the United States faces enormous debt problems and China uh, on a towering mountain of our own uh, uh, treasuries, uh, it's worth finding out what really happened at Bretton Woods and finding out what uh, what lessons it holds for today. And really, anything but being a, a moment of great selflessness, it was probably the moment when America laid the groundwork for its own economic preeminence for nearly two decades and sealed uh, sealed the fate of the British Empire. Uh, I remember when I wrote my first book, my editor told me, uh, only write a book if you have great characters and fabulous anecdote. And uh, it's hard to imagine an episode in history that has much better characters and anecdotes uh, than this one, from uh, uh, the two uh, chief characters, Harry Dexter White, the uh, offspring of uh, Lithuanian immigrants who, by dint of extraordinary uh, exertion and uh, perspiration, rose to be uh, a Mandarin era system without a, without an official job uh, to uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes, who was uh, at least in that time viewed as uh, uh, economics equivalent of Albert Einstein, a lofty aristocratic figure uh, who uh, was on a first name basis with all the great and the good in uh, in the United Kingdom. So it's a fabulous story, and I'm delighted that Ben Steele has come. Uh, to tell it to us today and to talk about some of the relevance of, uh, of this uh, watershed moment. Uh, ben Steele is a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, in New York. He is also the founding editor of International Finance, a top scholarly journal, and co-writer of the Council's Geographics Economics blog. Um, before joining the Council in 1999, he was uh, uh, at uh, Chatham House in London and he has uh, his, uh, his DPhil from Oxford and his undergraduate degree from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a columnist for Dow Jones Financial News, a regular contributor at the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. His last book, Money, Markets, and Sovereignty, was awarded 
the Hayek Book Prize in 2010.
being said. Up to uh, the fact that we are a republic, but you take that, and, and, and reason this is very important for you to go and, and and see what these folks are doing on the Republic for the United States dot org is to have, in, in in my view, not only the concept of having mentally in the fact that she's a republic, it as a as a Cornerstone poles, like a maypole, where you, you look around you and you see the um, uh, arena of uh, the progressive communist and uh, in the government, and uh, uh, and understand that people have other ideas. They almost have. They're forming another government within their their mind, even. And you take uh, the idea that this is the first time in history uh, that over 30 states have submitted petitions to separate themselves from the current America. Uh, it has happened before. Uh, Maine was once part of Massachusetts, and Tennessee was once part of North Carolina. A lot of people don't realize that. But about 60 million Americans right now, they're, they're ready to, to, this is me talking, this is not the people for the D, the DSI, but the the idea of the Declaration of Sovereign Intent, uh, I would consider a very important reminder to the internal war that will ensue and is ensuing as we speak in the United States of America. In Texas, for instance, you have over 5 million people who, who want the state to secede from the country. In Colorado, you have seven counties that are threatened to form a new state. In Maryland, you have uh, five uh, counties that want to remove themselves from the state altogether. And if, let's say, let's say that uh, a... Uh, uh, the particular counties form a new state, let's say that happens, then you have an additional 11 new states. And, uh, of course, many of these would not likely uh, succeed, but it's um, uh, the the point on the, on the basis is that uh, you follow the money. Uh, if the residents in these people's uh, minds uh, have the money to to uh, depart themselves from the dependence on the United States government, then this is the greatest threat to uh, the socialism and the communism, which is in our present Congress at this time in the real world. I mean, you if you if you wanted to have a observation of the uh, number of laws that are passed weekly of how you take out your rights. In other words, when I about six years ago on our on Parker Pathways and RBN, I started it six years ago on this idea, which was how many rights are taken away per week um, for uh, your water, food, and medicine. At that time, I was exposing what's happened now, which turned out to be uh, the Obama law, which way they're putting together. They had their wish list together. And all was based upon um, 
the Agenda 21 of the United Nations. <coughs> Excuse me. And of course, now that uh, has now been uh, converted and changed to Future Earth. So, what you have here is uh, world domination by fiat. And uh, this is why it's important to remind yourself under the uh, Declaration of Sovereign Intent that uh, the, the way the government sees things is not the way you see things at all. And uh, in my briefings, uh, in fact, they have no intention of having a republic. Uh, they tell the public what they want from the congressional days, but they have no intention of that. Um, nor do they have any intention of having people, uh, have we the people even in the Constitution. There are movements within Congress to even take those three words out. They've already changed um, the patent law, and uh, which I will get into, and I've mentioned this to you many times, taking from the first to uh, invent out of the Constitution and put it in the first to file. That was a, that was the second act uh, that Obama did on his first uh, two weeks as president. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, <coughs> me, of course, that was with Senator Lady from Vermont. They had all planned this out. Um, and uh, even the, you know, the Valerie Jared, who was assistant to plan out what's going on in the treaty, quote, negotiations with Iran that's going on today. So today is Mother's Day, and um, it's also um, on Friday it was VE Day, Victory in Europe, and that was uh, uh, on the 10th. And, of course, today is a repatriation day for all of the uh, internment uh, camps uh, uh, in the, uh, both fields of battle. And then, of course, uh, there is the private paper of President Eisenhower, who uh, was very much involved in uh, uh, general activity of the European Front. But, of course, later after he became president, they had the Eisenhower letter, which, will, which was destined in his will and, um, and from his uh, ranch in Pennsylvania to be opened on 2017, which is next, uh, you know, it's coming up. So uh, of what he uh, learned and what was forthcoming from his private trips uh, to um, Area 51 at that time, and of course Nixon was privy to this information as well, and uh, but the thing is that a little at a time, what I'm able to say, I've given you the various um, uh, codex formulations on the change of the human being, the genetics, the process of development, the change of the water molecule, the development of the new foods, the changing of the mind, and uh, of course, fortunately. Um, I've been blessed to be one of the outside reviewers and active person in the Brain Project, which is uh, global, uh, which will reach almost a trillion dollars in research activity. 
and I'm very fortunate to have have chloramine caused health damage on RBN's homepage. Um, if you uh, go to the homepage of RBN and uh, find columnist archives, it's right there in the front. You click that on, and then you go down, and then you search down. Chloramine caused health damage is now at the bottom of the pile of the inbox, but it's there. And you click that on, and you'll have a cornerstone of where we were in 2004. Of course, now we're on the national stage. At that time, seven and a half, almost eight years ago, being on Arbia and um, putting the water on the on the uh, on the table. And so, with that being said, um, very quickly, I want to make a dedication to uh, the passing of Dr. Lawrence Saroff. Uh, he was uh, a surgeon. He was at Stanford. We were all taught to um, do our uh, Socratic method of uh, teaching, and um, uh, he uh, was very uh, instrumental in the cardiothoracic surgery practice and uh, uh, Close to invented the process of the cardiothoracic uh, uh, valve replacement bypass operation, <coughs> which later Dr. Kabodi and uh, uh, his associates uh, uh, that uh, went on um, uh, to form their own hospitals in Texas. And these, of course, uh, he had developed a any normal way of surgical training and uh, process of uh, development of the human biology department and put forth the idea of a new field which was called biotechnology, of which there were only six of us in the whole university that uh, were in this small room in the engineering department. And, of course, from there, all six of us went on our way to put forth the energy of which Dr. Lars Zarov uh, placed. Um, and um, he was voted the Teacher of the Year by the Associated Students at Stanford University, and uh, there was a reason for that. There was an idea that human biology should be part of <clears throat> the basis of, of philosophical religion. And uh, it was a good thing that my first touch with parapsychology and uh, uh, and, uh, and psychic engineering started there. Everybody and, and there were four people that were involved in putting that together. And if he hadn't done that, we would not have today the concept of even the discussion uh, of a brain project. So my hat's off to you, sir, and may your spirit find its place well, and uh, I thank you. And concerning Mother's Day, <clears throat> I had a flashback to things that were told to me when I was young about mothers who used to hang flags in the window when their son was in the armed forces. And... Um, and uh, they had a star on the flag. And uh, I was thinking about that. 
um, what would happen today. You know, think of the mothers today and what they have to go through. And uh, they're not fathers and families. And there are some good reasons for that. Um, they may not be the best reasons of what you would think, but the fact is the turmoil and the dissension of the society. You ask yourself, the declaration of a sovereign intent to have a republic, at that time it was a republic. There was dedication, there was worship, there was sanctification of what the mother, she was the, that was the cornerstone and still is. Today's mothers, if you work it through, are still that. But if you look at it closely, uh, in my private view, the mothers of today have even more of a molding of the of the family. There, you can see it in changes of gender identification in the children. You can also see that a lot of children are very spoiled. But you wonder if the children are wiser than the mothers in terms of how they believe in themselves. Just a thought. Okay, we're going to begin our next level. It's 800-313-9443 on Republic Broadcasting Network.
and many still don't know what hemp is. So now you know hemp is not marijuana, and marijuana is not hemp. They are different varieties of the same species. HempUSA.org wants the world to know these basic facts and to help people understand that hemp protein powder is the best-kept health secret you need to know about. Remember, hemp protein powder contains 53% protein, is gluten-free, anti-inflammatory, non-GMO, and is loaded with nutrients. Call 888-910-4367, 888-910-4367, and see what our powder, seeds, and oil can do for you only at HempUSA.org. Nice shooting. Hey, that's a sweet AK-47 chest rig. Is that multicam? Yep, got it from StrikeHardGear.com. Strike what? StrikeHardGear.com. Set your sights on StrikeHardGear.com. Tough, tactical gear for your Soviet-style weapon that's made in the USA. Affordable, plus a no-questions-asked 30-day money-back guarantee and lifetime replacement warranty. StrikeHardGear.com. Go ahead. Pull the trigger.
presentation that I gave three years ago on Parker Pathways concerning the addition of Sharia law in the incorporation papers of a, of a company that's formed in the United States. Um, so this uh, uh, changed the, the egg on the industrial design courses, uh, plays it open to the global arena. And you ask yourself, well, why would um, 17 major countries, United Nations, four communist countries, and one um, what is called the uh, Nigra Anglo dictatorship of, uh, of Africa, um, vote surreptitiously for the Hague Agreement of Change? Because industrial design in the form of declaration of idea is going to be the future technology of the world. Keep in mind that the developmental of the future world, which is upon us now, is the robotization of human beings, uh, the formation of robots and industrial and even medical robots are part of industrial design. You need to be reminded of this and remember what I'm trying to teach you. You know, you can talk about all you want about, well, we have to give people a leg up. The blacks don't have it good. The Angles, they don't have it good. American Indians, they don't have it good. Well, the government's trying to. They passed congressional laws in the past two weeks to take over federal Indian land. Laws have been passed in the past few weeks to change and redefine exactly what the mental condition of a person of a different gender or ethnic group should be reclassified in the diagnostic code. Laws have been passed in the past three weeks to change the concept of the development of giving robotism an identity. That's in the past three weeks. We're going to see you at the other end of the break. 800-313-9443. You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org. Your money, what is it worth today? A $100 bill in 1913 is worth only $2 today. So now your money is just about worthless and the Fed will continue printing more and more of it. But what if you could turn it around $1 at a time and make your money worth more than it is now? 
How? By acquiring gold before your paper money is totally worthless. But how can you afford gold at today's prices? By buying it one gram at a time. And this is so important because gold is the future. For as little as $65, you can begin trading your almost worthless currency for something real, something you can hold. Carrot bars, which keep their value, can be stored securely, and are easily accessible, just like a savings account, but a savings account backed by your gold. Carrot Bars International, a savings account you can count on. For more information, please click on the Carrot Bars banner ad at republicbroadcasting.org. Again, that's the Carrot Bars banner ad at republicbroadcasting.org. And start saving now. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Want something different from your detox? Then you want Hemp USA's Microplant Powder for a full body detox. With seven formulations and eight different sizes, you will feel and see the difference. And the best part? It's only about $10 a month. Our customers love it, and we ship worldwide. Get the detox difference. Get Microplant Powder from HempUSA.org. Call 888-910-4367 or visit HempUSA.org. See what our powder, seeds, and oil can do for you at HempUSA.org. With autumn in the air, it's time to think about getting ready for winter. And it's time to save at HerbalHealer.com. You'll find amazing seasonal savings to prepare you for the fight against cold and flu season. Like Oregacillin to promote lung health. 30 capsules, regularly $34.95, now only $25. HHA Olive Leaf, the natural antiviral, normally $16.95, now 60 capsules are just $12. HHA Elderberry Power, a great flu and virus fighter, regularly $16.95, 60 capsules. Now $10. Save on all our homeopathic detoxes. Choose from lungs, kidney, liver, brain, libido, or whole body. Normally $26.95, now just $20. Visit HerbalHealer.com and click on the Fall Winter Specials button to save on all our natural cold and flu fighting products. Also explore our Herbal Healer Academy correspondence courses that teach you how to handle your health naturally. HerbalHealer.com, healing the world with nature, one person at a time, since 1988. Americans are reeling from Obamacare, higher prices, and an epidemic of policy lapses. AsiaRunLikeHellGuide.com has you covered. World-class medical and surgery at one of Asia's most modern hospitals. 300 doctors, surgeons, and dentists serving 300,000 patients a year. Fractions of U.S. prices. Friends or family forced to go out of pocket? Avoid bankruptcy. Tell them to run. Run like hell. Hit us up now. We'll show you how. AsiaRunLikeHellGuide.com. Your bad and uh, the call in 
number is 800-313-9443, and my email is kwati at sbcglobal.net. Okay, we've established in the first 30 minutes of the first hour of Parker Pathways that there's a developmental process of robotism that has now been formalized through the industrial design system of the, of the Hague Agreements which encompasses about 93 countries. We've established the concept that uh, the development of uh, uh, process of the new politics has already been implemented. We've established that uh, the idea that we're not a republic in reality, but should be. We've established the fact that the, in, in part of that, this means that the uh, human on the planet uh, is not considered um, but the carbon footprint which has now been implemented into the medical record um, and part of your uh, virtual water use as part of your carbon footprint, which I've been talking about for five and a half years on every Parker Pathway program. And at least you're, I don't know if the eyes have glazed over or if there's sense <laughs> development. And, uh, you know, you can say, well, these are nasty people, and they have done that. Yes, they are more than nasty. You want to talk about a change in terms of the development of the Alinsky program, the thing with Hillary Clinton just walks around and says, well, I'm ready for the call, man, just give me four more billion dollars. That's her call for this morning, four more billion. Well, you know, if she doesn't run for office, she keeps the money. But that's not the intent. <clears throat> Let's uh, look at something. I remember when Obama was heading into his uh, second, uh, even he was surprised that he had won over Romney. He, I don't know if you know that. The insiders that I know, I'm connected, so... I can tell you right now, they uh, they didn't think that they rigged it that well. But the thing is that, excuse me, I mean, they had people all over the country. They had a black lady on, if you remember, because I voted four times, you know. Many, I'm proud of it. You know, of course, it's a federal offense. Um, and, of course, to rig the computers is also a federal offense, especially when you do it for 47% of everything moving in the country. And it was on the stage, I saw the president of Google, and I, I made a, a comment that uh, I said, well, he must be a donor, but what the hell is he doing at the, uh, you know, stage one time? In other words, uh, Obama didn't want to read the Book of Secrets, and uh, the Oval Office was locked up for 15 minutes with nothing in there, but only Obama. And, of course, uh, for the rituals that he was doing. But the thing is that I kept asking, you know, and, of course, I've long ago found out why Google President was there. But I'm, uh, starting, uh, we begin our program on RBN today. This is May 10th. And uh, the uh, Google uh, uh, Corporation uh, announced on May 8th, and it'll go to May 22nd of this year, the Patent Purchase Promotion Program. Now, the whole purpose of the development of, uh, of 
of uh, Google saying, well, we're going to give you a number, and you can come in and you can and you tell us uh, what patents that you are willing to sell. Uh, you and the audience can do that. You can find the Google number in your area, and you tell them, well, this is what I want to sell. And uh, they'll... Uh, they'll ask, well, what is uh, the price you've got on it? <clears throat> and, of course, the price will be everything. But keep in mind, Google wants to buy your patent. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, of course, you will get, in return, um, a, uh, a license uh, to license back uh, to their patent. So, in other words, what they're doing is buying your patent, but they're you having you the license to be able to 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 the uh, to sell it. But of course, the license is irrevocable; it's non-exclusive, and it's non-transfer; it's non-assignable. But the fact that it's non-exclusive means that they can they can license that to anyone. See, the, the key when you're doing patent negotiation is, uh, in terms of valuation, is you have an exclusive license. So you ask yourself. Why would Google do that? Well, boys and girls, if you, you know, if you want to, you know, that's a problem, you see, that I see in, 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 all, in, in all of this. And this is why I introduced the, the uh, uh, Declaration of Sovereign Intent, which was promoted by one of the listeners. The whole thing comes down, you see, is the arrogance of the world stage. Now it, we're going to get into that and, and other things, but these are you see these are forms of arrogance. <coughs> in other words, the idea here is that uh, the Google to control the major patent system and having the patents means that they can develop the artificial intelligence for robotism in a different way. In other words, they, they can. This was the greatest problem that um, uh, uh, the Apple people had, uh, and they were they were able at the time when Apple was formed to understand this. They were aware of this then. That was 25 years ago. All of this was planned then. And uh, it, uh, that's why the Apple founder held it to his chest. And, of course, the brain behind that, Mr. K, he knew it too, brilliant human being. He never said anything because, not that he was not a, a, a true American, because he is. He's one of the more true ones of the whole bunch. But the whole thing is, you see, that if you submitted your offer to Google, it comes down to whether you're the patent holder to be able to price the technology correctly. And here we go into the valuation. Remember what I taught you in terms three years ago, that a human being at that time was close to a million dollars in value on the death penalty, the IPAB, which the Congress has no intention to meet that February 1st, 2017 deadline if you don't repeal the death penalty because they're adding to the death penalty. They did it again this past week. So, of course, the movement, that doesn't mean our movement is over. On every program, 
I am mentioning the fact that if it is not repealed by February 1st, 2017, the process of the carbon footprint and the development of the cost analysis based on health real-world treatment in your end-of-life directive, which you will sign, just like in the movie Soylent Green. And the thing comes down to the fact these the directives have always been up front, no longer. I keep warning you about it. I keep telling you about it. And I my 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 spiritual base is the fact that I my karma is clean. I'm telling you something that can save your life. You think this is just this kind of processing developmental system by which we have just got an economic base of the fact and the world is economically falling and we'll buy some gold and we'll do some silver and we'll, you know, and work it through. Um, and I think, no. <laughs> I keep coming back to what I'm trying to teach you. The currency is you. The blood supply is you. The quantity of productivity based against the carbon footprint of robotics is you, me, you. We are the product. Remember when chloramine caused health damage? I wrote that actually in 2002, and it was printed all over the world in 2003, I went on air a little bit after that on RBN. Compliments El Pito, El Quid Procoto, John Statham. That's the highest compliment that I can give a human being. So the whole thing comes down to the fact that <coughs> we have the, the process of the developmental system of the mind to be artificially intelligence-based within the formation of the carbon footprint under the guise of climate change is the fact that you're utilizing utilities. The idea is to control the water, to control the food, to control the earth, to control the mind, and control the process of the intelligence. You want me to go over that again? Now, the whole thing comes down to the fact that if you have, let's say, the governor of California, who for eight years did jack nothing about the water, we came out to the fact that, I, in fact, somebody, someone mentioned to me yesterday, they said, well, how many years do you think people have been drinking these chemicals under the process, and even fluoride itself, as if you want to pick on fluoride? How long were we there before we went on the national stage? And my answer yesterday was that I know about. Uh, with all the medical work that had been done before 1998, before the, the uh, cancerous chemicals were placed in the drinking water, I would say that was 17 years before that. So we're looking at, we're looking at uh, 35 to 40 years and the process in the development, we're in the third generation of infants being born with the same chemicals that were in their grandparents' mm. contamination. 
And the whole process that why do you think they stopped doing autopsy reports? Why do you think they stopped doing autopsies? Why do you think that there was the process of development of organ transplants on live people, which we'll get into today? Why do you think there's a process of development of the brain project itself to save people's lives, but it's being used in other ways? Why do you think that the process, when I gave you the law cases for the water uh, process, the Commerce Clause, which was taken from water law, used in the Obamacare argument in the front of the Supreme Court, and uh, Chief Justice Stevens wormed his way through it and said, well, it's a tax, and he screwed it around the fact of the Commerce Clause of saying, well, you can't cross the line, but you can for water, but you can't for insurance. And tort law in malpractice in medicine, no, we can't have the cap on the malpractice insurance because <clears throat> that will make the tort lawyers not able to have their case. The arrogance of the governor of California to say in front of God and everyone, shut up. You want to talk about the weather? He says, shut up. He says, the process is a thing. Quote, from four major world papers, but only three papers in the United States of America, to show you how corrupt it is. Let's give you the Italian first. Quote, Governor Jerry Brown <clears throat> took a sarcastic approach to the critics of the $15 billion twin tunnel plan Wednesday saying unless they have invested million hours of working on the problem as their staff has, they should shut up, unquote. <coughs> the tin tunnel plan is what is a process in California where they want to put tunnels in the process called the Delta. It's in Northern California. Of course, it's next to the sea tide and everything. How, how many years is that sea tide in the process of the development for, for most of the water for the states which grow over 27% bottom line, bottom range of all food for the United States and 30% of most of the food for the rest of the world. It's estimated that the tides themselves have been there before Christ. It is estimated that the species which they're trying to protect only came recently in the past 300 years. The development of the new crops and the development of that were developed as the people came west and took lessons from the American Indians, the Madocs, who were living in that part of the world. Now, this is why the arrogance is coming into the process. If we are a republic, then why do we have control given to people on an independent base where the governor of California is using the same executive power of violating the Constitution of the United States as Obama does and quotes Obama that he's doing that. If we, I have said it before, that if this whole activity of social communism in this country, which is approved by polls that have come through 40 to 45 to 48 percent, they love this stuff. Now, this is great. The hell with you. Depopulate. We want the other end. There are too many people on the earth. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We've got our camps set up. 
We've got Montana tunnels ready. We've got the 78 elite tunnels that are already under the ground. We've got the 74 cities under the, under the ground almost finished. We already have our own laser bomb. And what the hell we're going to have? Oh, it's all going to be a sun ray that burns the hell out of the earth. That's what it is, a sun ray. We're going to have the whole process of the thing. Ignoring, ignoring the physics of the Femi accelerator, which is, which is d d giving us the information right. in terms of the proton change which is going to be within the water itself. Why do you think they're promoting recycled water? Oh, well, we don't have enough water, so the process, no, they're missing electron for the pancreatic cancer, which I've talked about for a long time. So the idea of saying shut up is not just from the governor of California. This is the attitude of people that are in Congress, and some of the newly elected people, by the way, which we won't get into. We come back at the other end of the break. We're going to talk about a nasty subject of the EPA's in-run rule of the control of the world's water through the United Nations. 800-313-9443, and it's showtime.
Call 888-311-4311. That's 888-311-4311. Again, that's just $25 plus shipping and handling. And you'll receive the new book, Epigenetics, a free membership and a free CD. Updated doctors don't lie. Call 888-311-4311. That's 888-311-4311. Come to think of Bayano, a small community in Panama which is being established for people who believe that a future crisis may be difficult to survive in North America after a collapse of the system. Go to bugoutpanama.com for more information. There is limited space for 100 people only. Go to bugoutpanama.com to immigrate as long as you can. Repair. Don't despair at bugoutpanama.com. Pathways. And before the break, <clears throat> I was uh, presenting the concept of the uh, Environmental Protection Agency's real world called the End Run Rule, which is uh, to declare the waters of the United States under uh, United Nations uh, rule. Of course, all it has been for three years already and uh, the EPA to take over the jurisdiction over the lands to regulate uh, farming, water, and all its uh, attributes um, to uh, what is the reason it's called an in-run rule is because to get around Congress um, based upon uh, Obama's uh, executive order uh, advocacy. Of course, the purpose of this, <clears throat> the purpose of this is to also close off small business in this in this country, and uh, the uh, office advocacy of the United States Small Business Administration has submitted. Uh, the highest complaint of the proposed rule of the United States Army Corps of Engineers and the Environmental Protection Agency uh, that uh, they have improperly certified the proposed rule under the Regulatory Flexibility Act, the RFA, under the United Nations to take over small business, all food, all farming, and all human activity that pertains water. Now, I go back to the beginning of uh, what one of the lizards proposed that we be a republic. Now, I ask you, if you, if you wish to be a republic, that is one of the answers basic to it, but how is it? I don't think the republic goes far enough. If you have the world court who is deciding the outcome of the international treaties on the development of a person's intellectual property and industrial design. You do that in one week. The same week you also change the definition of a human being. You also change the definition of what's called the parsing. The parsing. 
farce of the human identification of sustenance. I'll give you I'll give you an idea of the expansion. Under the United Nations and the EPA, which has circumvented all activity on the earth as the exclamation of the control of the water. Number one, under rule of the World Court and the, as the waters of the United States include all waters which are currently used or used in the past or may be susceptible to the use of the foreign commerce of the world and all the waters which are subject to the ebb and flow of the tide, unquote. We'll see you on the second hour, live hour of Parker Pathways as we pursue our republic.
um, unimaginable that we could be tricked again by false science. I mean, I heard you talking about global warming. Oh, yeah. The thing is, by the way, uh, Deborah, uh, uh, it turns out that, uh, that that I was the one. I, I'm not trying to brag. That's not the point. Because, you know, this is all life and death stuff. It is, the thing, absolutely. And the thing is, <laughs> I'm the one on the debriefing that exposed the Libya waters. Uh-huh. And uh, I went on to the United Nations. See, well, they called me the water bear in the United Nations, uh, not affectionately, uh, because all that you've said is all the things that I've put on the table for the past six years. Uh, this is why the lobbyists have spent over $150 million to keep me off air over the period of seven and a half years being here. And, because, you, uh, because you exposed um, well, the water? Well, I'm more than exposing. I'm, I, I have filed over 66 amicus curiae briefs in the real world, <clears throat> challenging each federal court on the, the, uh, on the deception of the control of the water to the human connection. And, uh, and by the way, you should put me into your website over there. You should have partner pathways on there, Deborah. And because uh, and, and everything you're saying is, uh, is, uh, <clears throat> is uh, copacetic on this. I've got some other things I've got to say, though. Uh, is Sonoma, uh, I'm glad you brought up Sonoma because, you know, there's a movement that uh, in California where they're saying, well, if we cut out some trees, we're going to get more water. And uh, uh, this is going on in the Sierra Mountains. They've got that whole project going on. And then in Sonoma, they, of course, there, there's the product of uh, there, there are two or three things happening there uh, about the various uh, funguses based upon the taste of wine and how the government wants to control fungus, which I find to be interesting since I have, I'm connected in Washington, so I can tell you there wasn't anyone, Deborah, any VA or anybody else that knew what the hell you were talking about with a fungus. I swear to God. Well, I, I, I find that very interesting because we have sudden oak death syndrome up here. We have trees of all varieties literally dropping like flies. And UC Berkeley came up here to Sonoma County a couple of years ago and wanted to um, take tests of trees on various uh, people's private property and GPS it with an app so that they could locate the sudden oak death syndrome, which they said was spread merely by driving your vehicles on uh, a um, infected property and or using clipping device, you know, clippers or so forth to remove dead branches. They said you're not supposed to remove the contaminated material off of your property. And uh, as of recently, uh, we discovered that there are about 450,000 acres that include a swath of area predominantly in Mendocino County, in Humboldt County, and in Sonoma County. Sonoma County only has about 7,000 of this Redwood Lumber Company's um, taking of trees, as you were just talking about. What they've been doing in this Redwood Lumber area where they've been logging for years is they have been slashing and gashing the tan oak trees, squirting the gashes with herbicides, including Roundup. They bring in um, out-of-area Hispanic laborers to do all of this. This area, this lumber company, is owned by the Fisher family out of San Francisco. 
that owned Gap, um, of course Old Navy, Banana Republic, the uh, Fairmont Hotels, and has a heavy hand in California politics. Uh, all, of course, donating millions of dollars every year towards the environmental movement. They're um, killing the trees, and they're letting them um, just fall in about a couple of years after their – it takes quite a while for their leaves to drop off and for them to actually die. We're talking about the tan oaks and other shrubbery they're doing this to as well. The fire chiefs up in the humble uh, Mendocino areas are – are just screaming because we have potentially, as they say, one of the worst fire seasons in California's history before us here in the next few months. And the neighbors that live in those areas are horrified to see the aerial shots of these large swaths of dead trees that this logging company will not log out. This is unregulated. And the what's also interesting is the Mendocino um, Board of Supervisors has not um, chastised this logging family against doing this practice, which the fire chief is saying uh, is going to be a lattice for the fires that are going to erupt. They're, they're planning to burn up that area of Northern California. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. And yeah, that, is, that is the plan, and everybody that's listening need to follow this. Um, I can tell you, if you don't mind, I do have a website where I have this information posted, and I'm happy to share that. If you no, go ahead, Deborah. Yeah, my website is uh, stopthecrime.net, stopthecrime.net. And on that homepage, I have a link that says Hot Radio Show Topics. And I have this article up, um, and it is called The Burning Up of Northern California. And I assembled uh, the uh, letters of pleading from the fire chiefs in that area, along with the outcome of the County Board of Supervisors. And I can tell you this, the lumber company, the Fisher family, uh, has uh, many side organizations that you can very well imagine. What, they're, what they've contributed towards this concern is meeting with the fire uh, departments uh, and coming up with evacuation routes. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, they uh, they have, uh, they call it the conifer enroachment, uh, you know, for the conifers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to uh, trying to obscure, they're saying, well, the conifers are obscuring the stand of oak, uh, which I find, you know, an oxymoron. But the fact is, if you look I, right as we speak, I am looking at the uh, maps of, uh, they're called LIDAR points. LIDAR points, uh, um, uh, one, I have all the maps of the area that you're talking about. Uh, the, the Sierra National Forest is particularly on 